0: Well, let's turn in our Bibles to the fourth and final chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians, where we're reading today in verses 2 to 9, page 982 in the church Bible. You'll find one on the window ledge or in front of you, and if you're using the large print version, page 1165. And I'm thrilled to know there's somebody I can call at 2 o'clock in the morning if I have any computer problems and He'll be willing to help me. Well, Paul is coming to the concluding section of this wonderful letter. Uh, he has once again in verse 1 of this chapter uh, repeated his exhortation from towards the end of chapter 1 that the Philippian congregation, their church family should stand firm together in the Lord, because among other reasons, they are loved by Paul, and they are his joy and crown. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Of all of Paul's letters to whole churches, the letter to the Philippians has always seemed to me to be the most personal, the most letter-like. At least in structure, it's very like the letters that my mother wrote to me twice a week uh, when I became a student here last century in the university. They began with personal news, as Philippians does, And then there would be a substantial central section, largely of personal instruction, reminding me I should be doing my washing, that that included washing myself, that various other things should be in place, and that in every way I would not let the Ferguson family name down. And then in my mother's case, either because she had come almost to the end of the pages of the Basildon Bond paper that she always used that some of you remember, some of you don't even know what a letter actually looks like, or because the mail was about to come and she was in a rush. The letters always ended with a series of staccato-like exhortations and pieces of information, And when we get to chapter 4, verse 2 in Paul's letter to the Philippians, it looks as though exactly the same thing happens. Um, Perhaps he sees that uh, his secretary, if someone is writing it for him, perhaps Timothy is coming to the end of the manuscript material that he's writing on. we get what often has been described as a series of random and quickfire exhortations. Uh, do this, don't do that, do this. I want to remind you of this. Here is what is happening. Here is my situation. Here is what I want to say to you. And yet, I suppose that most of us who are familiar with Paul's letters and therefore have become a little familiar with Paul might suspect that this particular man never did a random thing in his Christian life. And so, I think it's helpful for us as we read passages like this that seem to be full of completely disconnected thoughts to try to see if if there are, if there are links in the chain of his thinking, if if there is something underneath what he says that that drives the whole and unites the apparently diverse and random exhortations that he gives. And I think actually this is the truth here. There is a motif that runs through these verses that actually picks up a motif that has run through the whole letter It's not one that we've particularly noticed, although from time to time it's come to our attention. But if we go back through Paul's letter to the Philippians, which is often the best thing to do when you get to the end of a Bible book, to go back and understand the beginning in the light of the ending and the whole in its unity we notice one of the motifs that has run through the whole of this letter is actually the use of the mind. And Paul, time and time and time again, has used a verb that means to think. He used it in chapter 1 and verse 7. He used it again twice in chapter 2 verse 2, he used it again, chapter 2, verse 5, he uses it again in chapter 3 and verse 15, chapter 3 and verse 19, and then in our next section, he uses it again twice in the same verse. So, in a sense, if we had heard this letter rather than reading it or hearing it in English, we would have we would have heard a kind of drumbeat running all the way through in which the Apostle Paul was exhorting these Philippian believers, his dear friends, to use their minds properly in a whole series of different contexts. Reflecting on this uh, actually reminds me not of something my mother wrote to me, but a book that came out, I think, in the 1960s when I actually was a student here, uh, on Romans chapters five, six, seven and eight, by the late John Stott, in which I remember reading as a teenager, this sentence that now seems such an obvious thing to say, but as a young teenager, it, it stuck in my mind. John Stott said, "The secret of holy living." Now isn't that something we would all want to know? The secret of holy living." John Stott said, lies in the mind. The secret of holy living lies in the mind. I'm sure he said that in those days because there was a great deal of emphasis on feelings and emotions in the Christian life. And in the little world that we live in, probably there isn't that same emphasis, but in the world outside, tremendous emphasis, and in much of evangelical Christianity, tremendous emphasis on the importance of the feelings. You are driven by your feelings. And Dr. Stott was saying, no, the truth of the matter from a biblical point of view is that the secret of holy living, or as we have called it in this instance, the grace style, lies in the mind. Not, notice, in your IQ, not in your IQ, but in your mind, and in the way in which your mind has been shaped and fashioned by the truth and power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. this, of course, is precisely what Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, isn't it? How is it that our lives are going to be transformed? Answer, he says, it is by the renewing of your mind by the gospel that your life is transformed. It is what goes on in the mind that governs and influences what happens in your life. The way you think about somebody is going to influence the way you relate to that somebody. And what strikes me here in these three little paragraphs in verses 10 through 9, in verses 2 through 9, is that he actually illustrates this principle, Paul illustrates this principle in three different ways. First of all, in verses 2 and 3, that must have made some people, at least two of the members of the Philippian congregation, just a little uncomfortable when this was read out in the church meeting. Paul emphasizes the importance of having a mind that seeks the mind of Christ and, therefore, harmony with other believers." You see the words, I entreat, I beseech, I appeal to oh Euodia, and I entreat, I appeal to Suntake, to, to agree in the Lord. So, there is Miss Prosperity, which is roughly what her name means, and there is Miss Fortunate, and there they are excited to be in the church meeting when Uh, The church has been gathered. There's a letter from Paul. We're all excited to hear a letter from the apostle who planted our church. And as we are listening and we conceive from the movement of the material in which the letter is written that he's getting near to the end, and then suddenly we hear our names called out, "'I entreat you to agree in the Lord.'" or more literally, because he's using an expression here he's used before, I entreat you to think the same way, to think the same way in the Lord. Now, what's this all about? Well, you'll need to ask Yodi and Syntyche if they persevere to the end in their Christian lives when you get to glory and so through the history of the Christian church, there have been all kinds of wild guesses as to what was going on and who these ladies were. One thing I think is fairly clear. This was not a disagreement about the truth of the gospel. This was not a disagreement about the truth of the gospel, about Christian doctrine. Why do I say that? Because already in the letter, Paul has dealt with false teaching. And characteristically, he doesn't glide over false teaching because as we saw in a previous occasion, these early Christians believed that false teaching can destroy the church. So, whatever it is they are not in agreement in, it looks as though it's personal. But it's not only personal, it's also serious. Serious enough for Paul to call them out, not the kind of shout-out I'm sure they wanted as his letter was being read. And it's interesting, he appeals to each of them. He doesn't say, I appeal to Euodia to agree with Suntake, or vice versa. Whatever the issue was, he apparently doesn't take sides on the issue and it's serious enough for them to need somebody's help. Um, My guess is, this is pure speculation, these were the kind of ladies who, under the circumstances, didn't really want anybody's help. But He not only calls them out, He mentions this other individual. Some people think that it actually is a man called Susie Um, whoever it was, he calls this person, this yoke fellow alongside, and he says, I want you to help them, true companion, help these women. And I think we can therefore assume that whatever this tension was about, whatever this lack of agreement was about, The fact that the Apostle Paul had heard about it at such a distance was an indication he was concerned um, that if it wasn't already doing it, it was going to affect the whole church family. And the problem? I think the fact that he uses language here he had already used in chapter 2 when he had appealed to them and said, now, in humility I want you to have the same mind, and the mind I want you to have is the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ. The bottom line issue was these women were not asking the question in our situation, in our relationship with one another, what is the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ? And actually, friends, that's fairly typical of what happens in churches when people fall out or where there are disagreements of one kind or another. Sometimes it's the last question anybody asks. But what is the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ on this? as He has revealed Himself to us in His Word in the Scriptures? What's the mind of Christ here? Because that, as we, as we submit to that, that, that is going to resolve our tensions, our disagreements, our difficulties with one another. And it's interesting, isn't it? I, 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 you don't want me to linger too long on you, Odie and Syntyche, and I don't mean to, but I think it's, it's really very interesting that although Paul calls this other man to come alongside these women, in the very way he, he addresses the situation, he not only indicates that actually it's potentially very serious, but he gives little hints as to, as to how they can be helped actually gives them little hints about what the mind of Christ in their situation might be, because he alerts them on the one hand to the, the privileges that they'd been given, and on the other hand, to, to what they were destroying. He shows them they are they are destroying something that is far more important than whatever it is they happen to be disagreeing about. So, he says, for example, they had labored side by side. I mean, what a picture. Euodia, Syntyche, marching side by side. But now they are in danger of losing their partnership with each other. And they'd labored together with Paul. And so, they were in danger of fracturing their relationship to the man who'd been the instrument of the church's existence in the first place. And they'd also apparently labored with Clement and others, and so they were in danger of losing that privilege, and in their insistence on their own way with respect to one another, beginning to poison the church family, because it's not just that misery loves company. Disagreements demand company, don't they? Whose side are you on? And so they were losing so much for so little, and then he puts it in this, this beautiful way, they are sisters in Christ, and they, along with all of these others, he says, their names are in the book of life. You see what he's hinting at? He's saying, listen, listen, sisters. Listen, if your names have been written in the Lamb's book of life, and you are destined to be in His presence for all eternity. And He has put the hand of His grace upon you to bring you to Himself and to bring you into this church family, and you there are going to live together, not only in His presence, but in each other's presence. What on earth do you think you're doing? Have you lost your marbles? You're not thinking properly. And so I think we can assume that when he says to this friend, uh, this true companion, help these women, then he assumes that this true companion will remember all that he had said in chapter 2 about having the mind of Christ. And what characterizes the mind of Christ is that humility that the Lord Jesus demonstrated even towards people who had fallen out with Him. And not least, as we saw in Philippians 2, 5 to 11, in the way in which it summarizes what took place in John 13 in the upper room, He washed the feet of the man who had most fallen out with Him. Judas Iscariot. Now, I think we would be naive to assume that things like this don't happen in Bible-believing churches, but this is a Bible-believing church. This is an apostolic church. This is a Pauline church. And my guess is that most ministers could keep us going uh, for the rest of the day with some tragic illustrations of how churches have been poisoned by disagreements between two people. Well, of course, this wouldn't happen in Trinity, would it? Well, since all Scripture is given for teaching, reproving, correcting, and training in righteousness, let me try it this way. If I were sitting where you're sitting, and someone else called out in the middle of the sermon, I beseech Sinclair, not to involve any of you, I beseech Sinclair, and I beseech to agree together. I wonder if there's another name that would come to my mind before it was even spoken because I was already conscious of the way in which we weren't both submitting to the mind of Jesus Christ. So, first of all, in these verses we have a wonderful illustration of Paul's exhortation to have a mind that seeks the mind of Christ in our fellowship with one another. Then. Second, and in some ways less obviously, he goes on in the next section in verses 4 through 7 to talk about a mind that is guarded by the peace of God, a mind that is guarded by the peace of God. And this comes, of course, right at the end of the section. And, he says, verse 7, and. That is to say, when when these things are in place, verses 4, 5, and 6, when verses 4, 5, and 6 are in place, then and what you will experience is the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, not something you can work up or work out, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So, we want our minds to follow the mind of Jesus Christ. But, and many of us, or maybe if that's an exaggeration, certainly some of us in a congregation like this, we, we certainly want our minds to be guarded by the peace of Christ, because our minds… That's the problem, isn't it? The problem with the mind is that it's the mind that's the problem. The problem with anxiety is the anxiety is in the mind, and the mind doesn't seem to have the resources to cure its own anxiety. So, how is it if there is this and, when these things are in place, there is this and, how is it that in the gospel, our minds are guarded by the peace of Christ. Well, you notice in the preceding verses, Paul does something very typical of him. He, he speaks in the positive and in the negative. Sometimes he speaks in the negative and then in the positive, but he very often he walks on two feet, we might say, positive and negative, positive and negative. And the positive is, well, he says, rejoice, Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice, and that will lead to your life expressing gentleness or reasonableness. Have joy in a joyless world where you're going to be persecuted. Be able to be gentle towards your opponents. Well, what's the foundation of that? Well, the foundation of that exhortation is, because the Lord is at hand. And then you notice a a similar kind of structure when he becomes quite negative. So, he says, don't be anxious about anything, verse 6. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, try and focus on what is common to to both of these statements. There is an exhortation, and then there is something that grounds the exhortation, and in both instances, it's a reference to the Lord. Do you see that? The Lord is at hand. Make your requests known to God. And you see, He is giving them the the means by which we experience the peace of God that passes understanding, guarding our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's that essential transition to a God-centeredness. The Lord is at hand. Now, whether he means the Lord is near or whether he means the Lord is coming, in a sense, makes very little difference make your request known to God. You see, it's the, it's the movement from in to out. It's the recentering of life in the knowledge of God. But the really interesting thing to me is this. The two things he deals with here, joy and anxiety. Polar opposites in many ways, but we think of both of them as emotions, don't we? Joy is an emotion. And certainly, um, you know, I've met people who seem never to have known a day's anxiety, but if you have known a day's anxiety, you know it's an emotion that can affect the whole of your life. So, what's the problem with what Paul says? It's this, you cannot command emotions. You can't. Indeed, I suppose any, any 21st century counselor would say to you, the last thing you say to a sad person is, be joyful. And the worst thing you can say to somebody who is desperately anxious is, don't worry. That's are likely to say to you, what you, you don't worry. You don't know what you're talking about. That makes as little sense as saying to a man who is paralyzed, Get up and walk. But you see, that thought should trigger off some thoughts in our minds, shouldn't it? Because these are exactly the things the Lord Jesus said Be joyful to people who were sad, don't worry to people who were almost paralyzed with anxiety. And to a man was paralyzed, get up and walk. So, why, why was the Lord Jesus not a lousy counselor? That's all the bad counsel. You do not do that. Well, the answer is obvious, isn't it? Because in Jesus Christ, as those who were sad looked to Him, they could find the source of joy. As those who are anxious looked to Him, they could find the source of peace. And as those who were paralyzed looked to Him, He gave them the physical resources they needed to be able to walk. And you see, that's, that's what's embedded in what Paul is saying here, That's why the teaching He's he's giving them is, yes, in a very gentle way, it's, it's reorienting their way of thinking from the situations that they are in that cause joylessness and anxiety to the one who gives both joy and peace. And he's really hinting to them, you know, friends, uh, your mind is focused in the wrong direction. Remember, the Lord is at hand. Make your request known to God. I you know if you're familiar with the Psalms, there are many Psalms where, where there's a fairly obvious turning point, um, there's a but. There's all these difficulties and challenges, and then there's a but, and it looks as though from moving in reverse gear, the Samus begins to move up the gears, first gear and second gear and third gear, and then he may drop back to second gear, but he'll rise again to third gear and even fourth gear, sometimes even fifth gear or beyond. And what is it that causes the transition? Without exception, what causes the transition is this kind of switch of the mind from being focused on self and circumstances to being filled with the knowledge of the Lord, but God can do it. Remember how it's put by Isaiah, this is Isaiah 26, isn't it? He will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind, isn't that interesting? Whose mind is fixed on you. And Isaiah uses a wonderful word there for he will keep him. It means to watch, to guard. It's actually even used in the prophets of, of surrounding armies besieging a city so that nobody can get out or in. And that's what Isaiah is saying. He will keep in perfect peace the one whose mind is stayed on him. That's, that's one of the reasons why it's so important for us just to sit under the ministry of the Word and the songs that we sing, isn't it? it, it keeps, doesn't it keep some of us going just from week to week? because it presses in upon our minds that drift downwards and inwards and aroundwards to our circumstances, presses into our minds a re-centering in the Lord Himself. So, yes, He wants them to have a mind that is like the mind of Christ, and they share fellowship with each other, and a mind that's guarded by the peace of God and Then, briefly, thirdly, finally, a mind that I think we could put it this way, is well-stocked with the marks of grace. As a young Christian, I used to hear well-meaning ministers whom I loved and admired urging me, you need to learn to think as a Christian. And because I was a disagreeable kind of fellow. And you think that exhortation is all very well, but how do we think? And it's, it's 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 like one of those questions that you knew the answer until somebody asked you the question. How do you think? How do you think? And I came to this conclusion as a Christian that actually what Scripture teaches us is that we can only think clearly when we are first thunked That's not a Bible word. It's not even a Hebrew word. When we are thunked, that is to say the Scripture is not exhorting us to sit down in a darkened room and think. The Scriptures are exhorting us to open our minds to the teaching of Scripture, and the teaching of Scripture will thunk us, and our lives will be transformed by the renewing of our minds. In a sense, yes, it's, it's, an, it's an activity in which we engage, but, but like the exercise of faith, it's an activity in which it's God who does the transforming. And so, of course, often our problem is, our problem is like the, the parable Jesus told of the man whose house was swept clean of the devil, and then there wasn't any furniture put into it. And so the old demon comes back with seven of his best friends, and the end is worse than the beginning. This is a very important thing, isn't it? This isn't just the discipline of my mind. I must try and keep my mind under good control. If your mind's anything like mine, you know how difficult that is. It's f- allowing your mind to be filled with the right furniture. And you see, that's exactly what Paul does here, isn't it? This list of things. Some people have thought he just got this list from some of the best Greek philosophers. I doubt it very much, but even if he did, even if he did, they would say, do these things. But the interesting thing Paul says is, think about these things. Whatever is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise. Now you know all of the lists in Paul's letters that are like this are actually descriptions of a particular individual. His list of the fruit of the spirit. His list of the graces of the Christian life. This list, who does this describe? Well, it describes the Lord Jesus. It's almost as though he's saying, let your mind linger on the Lord Jesus and see these characteristics in Him. And then he does something very interesting. He says, think about these things. Let your mind rest on these things. And then he says, if you want to know what these things look like in our kind of life, you notice what he says and what you have learned, and received, and heard, and seen in me, do these things. That's so interesting, isn't it? That's, that's what happens in a, a real church family, isn't it? We, we get the truth of the Bible in the Bible, and it's preached to us, and expounded, and taught, and applied. But where we actually see the Bible is in each other, and we see elements of these characteristics in, in other Christians, as David was saying earlier on. We not only need each other in order for the church to work as a family, we need each other because we express these graces in all kinds of different ways, all kinds of different experiences, backgrounds, nationalities, struggles. And he's saying what? what your mind rests on in Scripture. You'll be able to see in the lives of your fellow believers and with me. And as you do these things, the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. Because at the end of the day, what all of this means is that Euodia and Syntyche, all the believers in Philippi, all of the brothers and sisters, whatever their circumstances, challenges, sorrows, anxieties, as God's Word fills their minds with the person, the work, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, then they begin to find the resources for Harmony in the fellowship, joy in the life, and peace in the heart. Well, this must have been a shock to our dear friends Yodi and Suntike. I hope they recovered from the shock to be able to listen to the rest of the passage, because if so, then our Lord's prayer would be fulfilled, wouldn't it? I pray that they may be one in order that the world may believe. And whether they did or not, let's be sure we do. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You again for this letter. Uh, We've no idea how long it took Paul to write it, but we know in a sense it's the fruit of a lifetime of Your work in him. We thank You that You've preserved it. This is an amazing thing to us. And we thank You that throughout the whole history of the church, Your people have benefited from it. And we pray as we seek to benefit from it, and from this passage this morning, that our minds may be more and more fixed and filled with the Lord Jesus, and that we may know that He is near.